Well, what an exciting conference to be part of. I want to applaud uh, Ben Locker and Ed Turk for, and all the people at Grand Valley and elsewhere who have supported putting on this conference. I an extraordinary event. And uh, thank you, Ben, for writing a, uh, an introduction to Elliot's page. I'm looking forward to reading it. We discussed it, so I think I have a preview of what's going to be in there. Uh, but uh, this is really exciting. I'd also like to thank uh, uh, our previous speaker, Father Takianagi, for uh, setting a very good tone, a uh, high tone, with the content of his paper. So I have uh, tough footsteps to follow. What I thought I would do this morning is go through a little bit about Christopher Dawson. Christopher Dawson is the historian whose work stands behind both T.S. Eliot and Russell Kirk. I want to bring out in bold relief some of Dawson's principal themes in his work. Uh, how we got ourselves into a modern dilemma, how, how possibly we get ourselves out of the modern dilemma. And I'm going to go through, after I give you uh, his sort of an overview of his life, I'll give you uh, eight particular themes to be alive to when you're reading Dawson and Kirk. Okay, who is this man, Christopher Dawson? What is his hold on us today, decades after his death? These were the questions asked by a group of Harvard professors who had been Dawson's colleagues, and they concluded some years after he left Harvard Yard that their former colleague remains enigmatic. Yet there is much that we can say about him with assurance. Dawson was born in Britain in 1889, and so was part of the much-studied generation of 1914, that quintessentially modern generation. Dawson's adult life spanned all the crises of the century, Talk about World War I and that lost generation, the hyperinflation of the 1920s, Great Depression of the 1930s, World War II, the Cold War. There's no doubt that he was a modern man and that his sensibilities were influenced by modernity, and yet his work issues a challenge to modernity. It acts as a powerful sign of contradiction, to use the words of Simeon. The reason the challenge is so powerful is that Dawson was able to transcend many of the prejudices of his day. And he was able to transcend the prejudices and platitudes of his age because he was steeped in what his colleague, T.S. Eliot, called the permanent things, a concept that's going to be exceedingly important, of course, to Eliot, Russell Kirk, and Christopher Dawson. The permanent things are fundamental to understanding Dawson's work. The permanent things refer to an order that holds all things in their places. This order is made for us, and we are made for it. The self-consciously Christian or Catholic historian, far from denying the existence of this eternal order, endeavors to ascertain its nature and to conform to that order since it is the source of the permanent things. Now, as you can surmise, the permanent things are identified with both revelation and with natural law. Identified also with truth, goodness, and beauty to provide a framework for the meaning of our lives. To be steeped in the permanent things is to be able to think outside the black box of one's age, outside all the givens that frame a modern worldview. Moreover, to hold fast to the permanent things is to, to reject the notion that time is meaningless. It is to reject the notion that history is just one damn thing after another. It was precisely Dawson's apprehension of the permanent things that gave him such great insight into the nature of time, history, and modernity. 
He not only observed modernity firsthand, of course, and the many manifestations of cultural decadence that attended it, but he had the intellectual, moral, and spiritual resources to put that age in perspective. And therein lies his enduring strength as an historian. Because Dawson apprehended the permanent things as few other historians of his day, he was arguably the greatest Roman Catholic historian of the 20th century. This apprehension of the permanent things also, I would argue, makes him worth reading in the 21st century. Dawson's awareness of his vocation as an historian is an interesting story in its own right. He decided on his mission in life when he was 19 years old, and it was Easter Sunday, 1909, and he's walking up Capitoline Hill, and he gets to the Araceli there in Rome, and an epiphany that is strikingly similar to Gibbons. Dawson says that uh, he pauses, where in fact, where Gibbs, uh, Gibbon uh, was inspired to write the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Dawson pauses at the very spot there in Rome, and he decides on his life project. He's going to be moved to write cultural history of humankind, comprehensive history of culture that was going to be based on Lord Acton's dictum that religion is the key to history. Now, Dawson spent the next five decades writing that book. It took the form not of a single magnum opus, but of several volumes and scores of essays that were periodically collected in books. Dawson really wasn't a book writer. He was more of an essayist whose essays were collected. Remarkably, remarkably a handful of his books are still in print. If you go to Amazon.com, as I occasionally do to check on how many of his books are still in print, you'll find a surprising number. And I think that that's interesting. Uh, he, has a, he still has a very small and admiring and tough-minded audience that appreciates his work. I once asked the eminent historian John Lukacs why Dawson endured among uh, Roman Catholic historians and people who are concerned with modernity and culture. And Lukacs said, quote, because Dawson is difficult. You have to know so much to read him. He's not the easy guy to, to turn to to try to figure out what's going on. For Roman Catholics struggling with the questions of modernity, Dawson plumbed it with all the power of his imagination and his scholarship. And he's difficult. There's no question about it. Dawson experienced considerable difficulties in his career, speaking of difficult, reminding us that political correctness is hardly a new phenomenon. This brilliant historian was the victim of the culture police of his day. Although he distinguished himself at Oxford, he was always denied a full-time teaching post at a British university. It was counted against him that he, quote, went over to Rome to use the lingo of the day. Dawson never hid his convictions as a Catholic convert, and he paid the price dearly and professionally. Of all places, it was Harvard that finally offered him a chair in 1957 when he was 68 years old. The aging historian was almost not let into our country due to poor health. There was suspicion that he had tuberculosis, and a young Massachusetts senator intervened on his behalf, a Catholic, and that senator's name was John F. Kennedy. Unfortunately, ill health forced Dawson to retire from Harvard in 1962. He returned to England, where he died in 1970, and such in brief as the Reader's Digest version of Christopher Dawson's life. Now, there is a common prejudice among mainstream historians that since Dawson was self-consciously Catholic, he must have had a reactionary 
intellectual agenda, something you touched on, Father. This reactionary intellectual agenda amounted to little more than documenting the decline of Christendom. Well, this view seriously misses the mark. While Dawson was indeed intent on helping readers understand the decline of Christendom, his work is about so much more than that. Actually, he was a leader in a fascinating intellectual movement whose aim was to revive Christian humanism. It is not sufficiently appreciated nowadays, although Brad Berzer's come out with a very important book trying to highlight this. But humanism was an intellectual and cultural battleground in late modern times. Indeed, 20th century humanism was the subject of its own battle of the books as Marxists, Freudians, positivists, existentialists, as well as theists, uh, Jewish, Protestant, Catholic, uh, all entered this debate. And they entered a highly public contest to define and control what human humanism was. A number of prominent Roman Catholics believe that modernity itself was at war with the tradition of the West's religious humanism. So they entered public discourse with the intention of reviving it. Jacques Maritain, for example, is thought by many to be the philosophical leader of 20th century Christian humanism. But Dawson is rightly understood to be the historical leader of the movement to revive a Catholic Christian humanism. There are others, Romano Guardini, E.I. Watkin, Etienne Gilson, J.R.R. Tolkien, many, many more, and these found powerful allies among Anglo-Catholic humanists like C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot and a very young Russell Kirk at the time. If you look at this collective body of writing these uh, individuals produced, you will see a preoccupation with decadence and the decline of the West. But one reason they devoted so much attention to decline was to diagnose the cultural and intellectual ailments of modernity and to show readers that there was a cure for the decline. They're not just indulging in the woe is us, you know, woe is me. There is a cure for it. So they strove to recover Christian humanism as a moral, intellectual, and cultural force in the West. They set out to revive that tradition, not by naively, not by naively attempting to turn back the clock, but by applying timeless Christian humanistic principles to the diagnosis, the problem, and the cures of their era. In Dawson, for example, you'll find excellent statements of what Christian humanism means and how it could revive intellectual and cultural life in the West in such works as The Crisis of Western Education and The Christian Humanist Tradition. I don't think one can fully appreciate Dawson's contribution to the discipline of history and to 20th century intellectual life if one fails to see him in the long line of Christian humanist thinkers. It goes all the way back to the second century. Now, I told you I'd tell you eight things briefly that I think are principles of Dawson's thought, and I'd like to go into those and show you that he is a sign of contradiction. First, and this is most basic, Dawson insists that we understand the relationship between religion and culture. Religion, he argues, is what puts the cult in culture. The word comes, of course, from the Latin cultus, which means not just cultivation, but worship. To, Daw to Dawson, this was revealing. It suggests that worship of a common deity lies at the root of all higher cultures. Religion and the moral code it provides are also the basis of common action, social action. 
For only when a people have a common notion of right and wrong, only when they share a moral code, can they rise above the might-makes-right mentality or ethos that is the law of the jungle that characterized much thought from Nietzsche forward. Only with a common moral vision is there a possibility that they will cooperate on a scale large enough to overcome the challenges of nature, including their own human nature. Hence, the truth of any particular religion aside, there is a utilitarian value to a people being religious, united in the worship of a deity. Second, Dawson defines what it means for us in the West that Judaism and Christianity form the foundation of our civilization, what we once called Christendom. It means that we have evolved in certain, a certain way of thinking different from that of the Chinese, Indians, and ancient Greeks and Romans. It means that we possess a linear conception of time with a beginning, middle, and end, and along with its corollary, uh, the possibility of progress. It means we believe that each person has been created in the image of God, traditionally, this is what we have believed, and thus has an inestimable dignity as well as inalienable rights. It means we seek to establish dominion over nature. It means we are restless to spread the good news about our life and destiny and civilization to parts unknown. These are some of the ideas and characteristics that historically have defined us as Westerners, and they ultimately come from our religion. As Dawson put it, quote, to live for eternal truths while facing every practical responsibility and meeting the demands of the present moment on their own ground, that is the spirit by which a Christian culture lives and is known. For Christian culture involves a ceaseless effort to widen the frontiers of the kingdom of God, not only horizontally, by increasing the number of Christians, but vertically by penetrating deeper into human life and bringing every human activity into closer relation with its spiritual core." Close quote. Third, it follows from the previous two points. The more a culture drifts from its religious roots, the more likely it is to encounter serious problems. In fact, Dawson defined the modern problem which is also a postmodern problem, largely in terms of secularization. He explained, quote, the secularization of Western Christendom involved first the loss of Christian unity, think Martin Luther, involved first the loss of Christian unity, which was itself due not to secularization, but to the violence of religious passion and the conflict of rival doctrines. Second, it involved the abdication of Christians I think he's saying here primarily Catholics, fellow Catholics, of their responsibilities in certain fields of social activity. And he especially condemned Catholic educators who had advocated their role as specifically, self-consciously, Catholic educators. They became secular educators with a crucifix on the wall. We may say that 19th century England was still a Christian society, but a Christian society that had diverted its energies to the pursuit of wealth. And finally, this problem of modernity involved a loss of belief, which was to a certain extent inevitable since the stability of faith had already been undermined by the two previous processes, by the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, and by the Christians left over uh, in, in the core of Christendom, 
who had a failure of nerve about teaching what they believed. Dawson's words here. To state the problem in a simplified form, if one century destroyed the unity of Christendom by religious divisions, and a second century confined the Christian way of life to the sphere of the individual conduct and allowed the outer world of society and politics to drift its own way, then a third century finds that the average man accepts the external social world as the objective standard of reality and regards the inner world of faith and religion as subjective, illusory, and ultimately unreal. Close quote. This is the essence of the modern problem. It's the same thing Solzhenitsyn, since he's been in the news recently, it's the same thing Solzhenitsyn tried to drive home when he said, quote, men have forgotten God. That was the source of our problems. Dawson indicted secularization and the decline of the family and social pathologies, totalitarian ideologies, intellectual confusion, and moral dissipation. Fourth, Dawson argues that the exit strategy, the way out of the modern problem, involves nothing short of the re-Christianization of Western culture. Not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Salvation will not be found in a state religion. He's not urging the West to return to a theocracy or to an ecclesiocracy. He pointed at the Roman Empire to illustrate. It was not the decrees of Constantine, but the blood of the martyrs that established Christianity as a social and moral force, bottom up, not top down. Dawson conceded that the return from a secular civilization to a Christian way of life involves a reversal of many historical forces that transcend not only the limits of our personal experience, but even of our own particular society. And yet, history ultimately is not so much about these large impersonal forces, but about the thousands upon thousands of decisions made by individual human beings, the human person exercising his or her free will. It is the individual mind that is the creative force which determines the ultimate fate of a culture. And the first step in the transformation of culture is a change in the pattern of culture within the mind, within the heart. This explains the importance of education, of catechesis, and moral formation in all of Dawson's thought, especially his later thought. He hit this hard, this point. Which leads to my fifth point. When Dawson writes of the re-Christianization of the West, he has in mind the historic faith, not some therapeutic religion that talks mostly about psychology, not about some syncretic theism such as you find in Toynbee or a host of New Age movements, but orthodox Christianity as it has historically developed. A religion with a specific revelation, jealously guarded dogmas, and transcendentally sanctioned norms of behavior. Only this historic faith could constitute a genuine re-Christianization of the West. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned Dawson's emphasis on the individual as the chief agent of historic change, and that leads to the question, to my sixth point, namely, what kind of society, what kind of political economy is most hospitable to individuals' free will and thus to the recovery of the West? In some ways, this question misses the point in Dawson. Civilizational recovery for him is not so much about right or left in the political arena as about above and below in the moral arena, in our own conscience. Nevertheless, to, be the, to the extent that Dawson did subscribe to a political philosophy, he was a Burkean 
who severely criticized the intelligentsia's love affair with the French, Revolu uh, French Revolution and its flirtation with the Soviet Union in the 20s and 30s. He shared with Berglund an, abhor an abhorrence of totalist ideologies that had eminentized the transcendent. It would, however, be a mistake to regard Dawson as an apologist of laissez-faire capitalism. He was a champion of freedom, to be sure, but of an ordered freedom. It was a freedom disciplined by religion to order our passions, a freedom disciplined by education to order our minds, a freedom disciplined by the rule of law to order our polity, and a freedom disciplined by a humane application of the laws of the marketplace to order our getting and spending. All these various ways of ordering our lives make true freedom possible. They have certainly created the climate for freedom to flourish throughout much of American and British history. Weaken or eliminate any of them, however, and freedom becomes certainly more problematic. Seventh, Dawson insists that we have the humility, the humility to recognize our limitations in controlling the future, or even divining the future. You will find no airy notions such as the end of history in his essays. Let me quote from him. To the Christian, the, prince, the hidden principle of the life of culture and the fate of nations and civilizations must always be found in the heart of man and in the hand of God. There is no limit to the efficacy of faith and to the influence of these acts of spiritual decision, which are ultimately the response of particular men to God's call as revealed in particular historical and personal circumstances. Here again, you see, Dawson is drawing from Burke, who wrote that the so-called laws of history, which attempt to subordinate the future to some kind of historical determinism, are but the artificial combinations of the human mind. There always remains an irreducible element of mystery. As Burke observed, quote, this is that famous quotation. It's a wonderful quotation. Russell Kirk used this quotation all the time. A common soldier, a child, Jesus, a girl at the door of an inn, Mary, have changed the face of the future and have changed the face almost of nature itself. This segues into my eighth and final point. Dawson would counsel us not to abandon hope. And any of you who have heard my talk on Russell Kirk knows that it is also my eighth and final point in my Russell Kirk talk. Here the two really intersect in a strong way. Dawson himself was a man of great hope, not optimism, which only goes as deep as the optic nerve, but the theological virtue of hope, which is quite a different thing. In his essay, Christian Culture is a Culture of Hope, Dawson upbraids those Christians who feel a certain satisfaction, a kind of schadenfreude at the hard times on which liberalism has fallen and the loss of hope in the future of modern civilization. These are the Calvinists and Jansenists who believe that Christianity is a religion of crisis, a judgment that regards even the highest achievements of culture as vitiated by man's fallen nature and doomed to destruction." Close quote. Dawson countered that Christianity, properly understood, does not delight in the frustration of achievement or the condemnation of culture. On the contrary, 
There is no religion and perhaps no philosophy which is so deeply concerned with man as a part of a community or which attaches a higher significance to history. For Christianity is essentially the religion of the incarnation, of the divine intervention in history at a particular time and in a particular social context. Thus, while Christianity rejects the nonsense that we can reach the end of history, it does not deny the possibility of progress in a deeper sense. It teaches that the course of, in the course of time, humanity has been leavened and permeated by a transcendent principle, and every culture or human way of life is capable of being influenced and remolded by this divine influence. Thus, Christianity has always been a culturally creative force to Dawson. Christianity, a culturally creative force. We're not just about turning back the clock. We are to meet with courage and creativity the challenges of the future. To illustrate, Dawson often pointed to the pagan Roman Empire and Christianity's impact on it. He did so because he saw certain parallels between the fall of Rome and our own day, just as Russell Kirk did. Christianity came first into a world which was over-civilized, where the social soil was becoming exhausted and the burden of empire and law was becoming too heavy for human nature to bear. And it transformed and renewed this civilization, not by any program of social or political reform, but by revealing the existence of a new spiritual dimension and bringing the light of hope to those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Quote, the heartless, hopeless Rome with which its monstrous expression in the Colosseum and the gladiatorial games became the Rome of St. Leo, the Rome of St. Gregory, a city which laid the foundations of a new world, the world of the Christian Middle Ages, while its own pagan world was falling in ruin all around. The remaking of an old culture by the birth of a new hope committed constituted the paradox of Christendom, the paradox of Christendom. This was precisely G.K. Chesterton's insight expressed in his great poem, The Ballad of the White Horse, which Dawson loved, uh, this is Kirk, loved. Everything depends on whether the Christians of the New Age are equal to their mission, whether they are able to communicate their hope to a world in which man finds himself alone and helpless before the monstrous forces which have been created by man to serve his own ends, but which have now escaped from his control and threatened to destroy him. Well, these then are the eight keys, I think, to Dawson's thought. Each of them challenges established intellectual orthodoxies. Each of them shows why Dawson was a sign of contradiction in the modern age and very possibly a guidepost for the age to come. Thank you. Yes, sir. At the beginning of your paper, you talked about permanent things, and uh, I don't know the concept of permanent things in Dawson, but I wonder if in Eliot, one of the permanent things is not original sin, the effects of original sin, the possibility of damnation, and there really ultimately isn't a progress which will get us beyond that. When people talk about the permanent things, to me, they always look for something good. It seems to me, at least in Eliot, one of the permanent things is the possibility of damnation. We're really on a Jansenist track this morning. <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. 
Uh, that, that is part of it. it it's, it's a knowledge of human limitations that are absolutely essential. Uh, because that, that, then you avoid hubris, you avoid pride, and you know with those limits uh, what you can or should attempt and what you can or should not attempt. Absolutely. I, I would agree with you, actually, that the permanent things are much more capacious than just a, you know, truth, goodness, beauty. Yeah, those are beautiful and marvelous, but the permanent things, the, part of the permanent human condition also is, is, is a, a felix culpa. <laughs> yes, Paul. Given, given Dawson, given period, how do you account for the uh, almost total lack any incorporation of Dawsonian themes in a document like Gaudium and Spades, which is kind of jejun uh, optimism that seems so totally alien to the Augustinian vision of a Dawson? Uh, the crude answer is because Maritain won the debate. Maritain, the Thomas versus Dawson, the Actonian historian. Uh, Maritain had the influence with the Vatican. He actually influenced, of course, some of the writings of Vatican II. And uh, within Catholic humanism, uh, Maritain dominated. Um, Maritain was the better publicist when he comes to this country. He's at Notre Dame and at Princeton and then in Toronto. Uh, he, he gathers many students around him. Maritain gets that international following. Um, I, I think that's the crudest way to put it, actually. It's almost a, there's a battle within, among Catholic humanists for ascendancy as well. And uh, Maritain won that battle. Uh, Dawson, however, it should be remembered that Dawson, who turned so much of his thought after World War II to education, had a, tr a profound impact at St. Mary's Notre Dame. Uh, Bruno Schlesinger there uh, adopted a Dawsonian curriculum. So students going to Notre Dame, going to St. Mary's uh, in particular. In fact, I knew one of the last students of Dr. Schlesinger's uh, who came through a Dawsonian curriculum about 15 years ago, 10 years ago. So that's kind of an interesting development there. So um, Dawson would be pleased that his influence remained in a curriculum long after his death. Yes. Paul. It kind of touches off on your last point, which is I was curious about how much you know about uh, Dawson's influence in the United States and how early he had influence in the United States. But also the second question, which is, in more concrete terms, did he have a political theory? Uh, um, you know, he, he was sort of critical of some elements of contemporary conservatism, but did he have a model in mind? That well, those are two great questions, Paul. First of all, uh, Sheet and Ward, Frank Sheet and Macy Ward were, of course, the two great Catholic book publishers, and they were uh, taken by Dawson very early on and wanted to publish his books. And the books did make it their way over this side of Atlantic. And this is... When you go to used book stores and uh, garage sales and that kind of thing and poke around, you can find many of Dawson's books from the late 30s on. He was, as editor of the Dublin Review, he also had an influence that spread after World War II. But it wasn't big. I mean, I don't want to overstate the case. Uh, Dawson has been vastly underrated in our country as he was in Britain, which is a darn shame because he had so much to contribute. As Lukács said, he is difficult to read, but the rewards of reading him to plumb the problems of modernity and a cure uh, from a Catholic humanist point of view are uh, manifold. Uh, with regard to um, the, the second part of your question about a, a, a coherent political theory, he was a Burkean. So he didn't create 
a big system. I mean, he, he, I think Russell Kirk and Christopher Dawson would have been uh, very compatible in their political views, their economic views. Now, Kirk developed the political and economic views much more than Dawson did. Dawson knew his mission. Don't they say that blessed is the guy, the, the gal who discovers their mission in life early on and then doggedly sticks to it? Because when, when Dawson pauses at that place in Rome where Gibbon had paused, and in that epiphany knew what his mission in life was, it wasn't to change politics. It was to reassert the historic reality of Christian culture and a culture that was fast forgetting it and, in fact, you know, denouncing it. So Dawson stayed much more on the cultural plane, and thank goodness he did. Any other questions? Thank you very much. Thank you.